It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. We need urgent response. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't waste things. Think this world is precious. Think your time is precious. I think I know more about the environment than most people. All you can talk about is the money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Hello and welcome to Hot In Here. I'm Jackson. And I'm James. And this is our podcast where we talk about climate change. So, James, how are you feeling? Um, I'm okay, I think. Not anxious at all? What, about climate change, future of the planet stuff? Uh, Probably a little anxious. Well, you're not the only one, and it's actually a very natural response to feel that way. There's even a term for it, eco-anxiety. That sounds like a plant-based Xanax. Uh, It makes sense, though. Yeah, and it's particularly affecting young people who are feeling a lot of weight on their shoulders and are frustrated by governments not doing enough. Well, that also makes sense. It's hard to look forward to your future when it feels like those in power couldn't care less about what's happening to the planet. Yep, but psychologists specialising in the area are trying to turn these really intense emotions that people are feeling into something quite productive. And today we are going to be speaking to two climate psychologists, Megan Kennedy-Woodard and Dr. Patrick Kennedy-Williams. I'm excited to hear from them. It's surprising how novel the idea of eco-anxiety sounds, but of course there's people who are anxious about the environment. I mean, we all are. But it also just feels like a very natural response to have dread and to be anxious about the future of the planet because if you feel this way, it just shows that you care. That's true. I guess it's about how we turn that anxiety into action and you know stop ourselves from being paralysed by fear. And our two guests today have actually just written a book, Turn the Tide on Climate Anxiety, that gives people the tools to do that. And we'll be hearing from them after the break. Dr. Patrick Kennedy-Williams and Megan Kennedy-Woodard, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Hot In Here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So I want to focus this interview on eco-anxiety, a term I'm sure a lot of people um, are now familiar with, and ways to overcome it, um, which is the focus of your new book. But first of all, given you are both psychologists, I wanted to use this opportunity uh, to ask the following question, and that's why do some people still refuse to accept the science behind the climate crisis? It's great that you're starting there. So often we kind of we start by launching just into kind of talking about eco-anxiety, climate anxiety. But of course, eco-anxiety falls under the umbrella of the psychological responses to climate change that we all experience. And actually, sometimes it doesn't manifest itself as anxiety. And, you know, asking that question, what is it that makes people sort of disengage or uh, refuse to believe the science? There's a lot of other psychological processes going on there as well, right? So when we're kind of faced with climate information, um, and to, to an extent, the way that climate change has been communicated, you know, absolutely no disrespect to the amazing work done by climate scientists, but the way that climate science was traditionally communicated, kind of using kind of a lot of sort of things that allowed us to psychologically distance ourselves from the problem, right? So it might use kind of very kind of scientific language. We talk about parts per million, you know, but if you look out the window, what does that really mean you know and likewise some of the imagery that's used as well you know that for a long time we've sort of said that climate change has a bit of an image problem because we tend to use again quite cold scientific imagery or images of kind of polar bears you know and um on melting ice sheets and that's a, it can be a really emotionally resonant 
image, right? But that can also make you look out the window and think, well, hang on a minute, I live in a temperate or subtropical region of the world, so that doesn't quite resonate in the same way. And so it's kind of allowed us to uh, distance ourselves psychologically from the problem, right? It allows us, it's allowed us for a long time to say, actually, this isn't me, this isn't my problem today, perhaps in a different place or perhaps a way away in the future. And that's allowed us to kind of focus a lot more on the here and now. Someone, a great psychologist, Paris from Stokes, in, in one of his books said, if carbon dioxide was a, a thick smog, a noxious green gas outside the window, then we probably would have reacted a lot more sooner. But also the opposite can happen, where we can almost sort of, if we hear too much scary news, it can almost kind of create this sort of switching off effect where it's kind of actually it can be overwhelming and then we sort of think that's just, just much easier to not engage with that at all. So the, really the, the, the challenge for climate communication has been for a, for, for a while now to, to try and strike that balance between helping people to, to not feel overwhelmed by the information but also not to distance themselves from it either. And then of course there are people who might have their, their livelihoods might be tied up in the fossil fuel industry or you know, so there are all kinds of reasons why it might be hard or, or, uh, to accept the science or easier just to pretend it's not happening. Megan, as a climate psychologist, do you deal with, do you see many clients who, I guess, have their head in the sand, that they're so, um, they're almost paralysed by fear that they would prefer to just pretend this problem doesn't exist? Uh, if I, I'd have to say that people that approach us certainly don't have their heads in the sand. They're, they're in fact, probably acutely aware of the issue. But the paralysis is something that we um, it, we sort of help clients with a lot because we know that sometimes that overwhelm can mean that people uh, find themselves unable to take the action that's required. Um, another side of that is people who are very close to the problem, whether they're researchers or directly affected um, their frustration in trying to communicate to people who um, the climate crisis hasn't resonated with. And so it's teaching them how to um, sort of communicate effectively by sharing commonalities, um, appealing to their sense of identity in a way that's going to help them understand the gravity of the, of the crisis, but also feel empowered to take action. So an increasing number of people are feeling anxious about the state of the planet. They're, they're frightened by the future. There's a term for this now, eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. How would you two describe the term? The sort of definition for the past five years or so has been the American Psychological Association coined this idea of a chronic fear of environmental doom. Uh, and that's, that's really kind of stuck. But as time's gone on, we've started to kind of understand more and more about how the climate crisis affects our mental health. And so we're kind of increasingly not looking, just looking at this as an anxiety problem, but involving other sort of emotions as well. Exactly. We can sort of highlight that there's um, people experience climate grief, um, climate depression, eco-rage, uh, but also we want to emphasize that there's the ability to experience positive climate emotions too, feeling really connected with nature and with others, high motivation, levels of optimism that often comes with climate activism as well. So we kind of the interesting thing about climate anxiety or eco anxiety is that it can have this kind of dichotomous effect almost, right? So for, for some people or in some circumstances, it can be actually quite motivating. We've we've kind of had some data from last year that showed us that climate anxiety is actually positively associated with climate action. So we want to make sure that we're not kind of pathologizing this at all as well. And and you know we'd be the first to say, and along with our clients as well, that we don't believe climate anxiety should, should be considered like a psychiatric disorder, right? There's much more just a, um, an understandable response to the, to the crisis that we're, that we're facing. 
Young people obviously feel a lot of responsibility. Some may feel frustrated and let down by older generations. Does that also play into this? Certainly. And actually, we've we've just been really inspired by the work that we've done with activists because uh, they really um, they understand the gravity of the situation. They're highly active and they're also the first to acknowledge when they need to really lean into self-care um, and connecting with the community around them for support. Um, so it's it, they've been able to engage in a way uh, that's really um, a, a changed sort of our um our sort of optimism about what's to come because, you know, they, we, they've sort of been passed the baton involuntarily, but they're really running with it. And it's important that um, everyone around them really supports them and, and treats them, you know, as allies. There was a great study that, uh, last year that looked at sort of 10,000 young people aged sort of 16 to 25 from 10 different countries around the world. And what it highlighted a few things that were really, that were really important in terms of our understanding of climate anxiety. But one of the, th- the key messages was actually government inaction was one of the key drivers for, for climate anxiety. And also, the closer you are to the problem, the more you're likely to experience climate anxiety. Because for a while, we're sort of thinking, well, is, just, is, is this just a problem for the privileged? You know, is climate anxiety something that we have the, the, the pleasure of worrying or experiencing or worrying about if, if, if uh, we don't have any immediate contact with, with the climate crisis? But actually, you know, the closer the, closer the people were in that study to the, if they were from countries, Philippines, Portugal, the Northern, Northern Hemisphere, where they're experiencing a lot more of the direct effects of climate change already, they're experiencing a lot more climate anxiety. But I think it's important as well to kind of understand that young people do seem to be experiencing climate anxiety, I'd say it's kind of to a slightly greater extent than, than, than older people. But actually, this is a problem that can affect anybody. And I think we want to make sure that we're not just sort of tying climate anxiety as being a, a, a phenomenon that we're only seeing in young people, because that's, that's not been our experience at all. So it can affect anybody, and you've you've already touched on this, but I, I guess it's really important to emphasize that these feelings, these emotions, are um, very rational and perhaps even a healthy response to climate change because it's proof that we have em- empathy. It's proof that we care about the state of the planet. Certainly. I think you really touched on the word empathy there. And it's not just empathy with, um, with you know, our emotions, so it's that self-compassion, but also really fanning that outwards, looking at different environments, different people, um, different species, and, and really feeling um, more of a connectedness that it's been really simple to kind of step away from with materialism and consumerism and things like that. Actually, when we look at what's fundamentally important and at our objects of care, for example, you know, the future of our children or a certain species, we're much more likely to engage in climate action that has longevity because we're emotionally invested with empathy, with love, with compassion, and makes us much more driven to um, achieve our objectives. Is it also important to realise that as individuals, we can't solve every problem and that instead we should just focus on one problem or perhaps a few problems that we can help with? Is that the best way to channel eco-anxiety into climate action? Certainly. I find out, you know, channel into what you're good at, um, what's easy, where you can have the biggest impact, you know, where you feel that passion. It's really important because 
this is absolutely not down to one person. And we really need to give up the myth of perfectionism because this was not something that we as individuals created. We need to hold systems, governments, corporations accountable. Um, but that starts with self-care and being really invested in our achievable actions, influencing others, having conversations about climate change. That's where we're going to have the biggest impact, voting with our wallets, voting with our vote. You know, that, that's really, but that, again, it, it comes from within, from that empathetic place. And just on that, how important is it for people to talk about their feelings instead of ignoring them? And how can people actually go about doing that? <laughs> well, I mean, we're, I'd say we're biased as psychologists. So it's always good to talk about your feelings. We're <laughs> programmed to think that's a good idea. Um, but no, it is. And it's interesting because one of the one of the, the ways that climate scientists for a long time have said actually what you know we can have the greatest impact as individuals is to talk about climate change right we need to keep this on the on the agenda on the public agenda because actually when we have when we talk about it it creates a kind of strong social mandate and then when you have a strong social mandate governments and corporations all of a sudden are much more incentivized to be able to, to introduce policies that reflect that reflect the will of the people so it makes a huge difference from a, an impact perspective. But also in terms of climate anxiety, we know that actually being able to talk not just about climate change, but about how, how climate change makes you feel is incredibly important. And what's been wonderful to see, even over the past couple of years, has been a real emergence of, of uh, things like climate cafes, where either face-to-face or, or on Zoom or whatever, people are coming together and saying, we need to talk about this, not, not about the, the science or about that side of things, but actually about how it's, how it's making us feel and how it's affecting our daily lives, yeah. And likewise, as you touched on at the very beginning of, you know, speaking to people that may have never had a conversation or really thought much about climate change or people that, you know, are quite, um, you know, um, unwilling to engage with it. There's always an opportunity to um, find something that we have in common. And it's about sort of moving away from that polarity that we often experience. I mean, I think there was a great study in, um, in Britain that said that people that are on entirely different sort of voting spectrums and their ability to um, care about the climate crisis or not be interested at all they all agreed that they they all love david attenborough <laughs> so <laughs> there's always there's always that opportunity to find something that everyone can agree on okay so so you're saying that it is possible to have productive conversations about climate change even with people you know we we, we all know people we all have people in our lives who might not necessarily mm-hmm. or, or simply do not accept the science of climate change but but you're saying it's possible to to have those conversations if we approach it in the right way Certainly. And, and also it's, you don't have to, it's, it's not a win or lose situation. If you get someone thinking about climate change, who's never thought about it before, or, you know, there's, there's a real sort of snowball effect and it's great to not necessarily tell people don't like to be told what to do. They like to hear great stories about how enjoyable something is, you know, Oh, I love my electric car or, Oh, my garden's so much more beautiful because I'm composting or I feel so much better because I'm eating less meat and I'm cycling more. You know, we can do this by nudging. It doesn't have to be a 180 from someone that goes from climate to nine to vegans you know it's like you can kind of go all the way in between there are a lot of emotions that, that climate change can trigger and we've touched on a lot of them but some of these can be really intense emotions especially for young people to have to, to deal with to have to confront what other messages what other advice do you have for young people experiencing a wide range of emotions an experience that they haven't had to deal with before i mean we've touched on a few already but the first thing is to just you know, we, we spend a lot of time 
normalizing the the emotional experience here you know and although, although we've been talking a lot about the uh, positive emotions that that can come from connecting around around climate issues and finding your tribe actually that this can be this can be frightening and you know yes we can people can experience panic attacks they can experience insomnia they can experience problems concentrating at school or at work or whatever you know we do need to be really mindful of this and absolutely it's okay to be feeling what you feel about this you know reach out of course find people to connect with about about the issue have a look around the kind of you know we talked about the youth activist movement today a lot of people there you know are talking more and more about how to how to look after yourself you know it's really important that we don't feel like we need to be um fighting this fight 24 7 give yourself permission to take some breaks did you know have a digital detox and get back into nature as well time and time again you know people are saying actually i kind of forgot to spend as much time as I should be in the places that I really care about and that I'm fighting for. Get into nature, look after yourselves and, and, and talk with people and connect about the issue. On this podcast, we have interviewed some climate scientists, uh, including Professor Michael Mann, who really emphasises the importance of approaching the climate crisis through the lens of hope and not fear. Personally, how do you deal with the challenge? Again, as, as, as psychologists, I think we're pre-programmed to come from a, a place of hope and optimism. I think it's, 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 it's always been, before we started working in climate psychology, hope is instrumental to, to our well-being. But, you know, we have to be a bit nuanced about this. And that, that obviously has been the counter-argument that to says, well, it, well isn't hope going to breed complacency? And so we're fully behind the idea that hope is, is essential but it needs to it needs to be active hope you know it, it needs to be that form of hope that is action oriented and uh, motivating rather than kind of encouraging us to be complacent you know in that sense you two are now authors the book is turn the tide on climate anxiety sustainable action for your mental health and the planet what exactly inspired you to to write this book we kind of didn't feel like we could not we had to I mean it felt like it was it was sort of our aha moment and the activism that we wanted to do because we knew that we had the skill set to provide support for people um and we wanted to look at you know where we could have the biggest impact and for us this is very much an everybody now issue and so um again by using that optimism that um activism and that normalizing of emotions we knew that we could create sort of um a a cycle of self-efficacy where people really felt um empowered and and were able to thrive in the work that they did. So for us, you know, it's sort of, um, it felt like the best kind of sort of activism and um, input that we could, we could sort of offer. I mean, initially, Michael Mann was one of the, he wrote an endorsement for the book and he said, he said something along the lines of, this is no longer a, techn- a technological issue. It's a, it's a behavioral and psychological one. And so I suppose as psychologists, we're sitting here thinking, actually, we want to be doing everything, yeah. everything we can. And, and it, was quite an, it was quite an organic thing in terms of how we started working in, in, in this area. You know, we, back, you know when we were at a, a practice in Oxford, we, we were having uh, researchers, climate scientists approaching us saying, actually, this is, this is starting to really impact my mental health. And we realized at that time, we didn't really have any sort of pre-existing psychological approaches or, or how to how to help people. So it was, it was very much a ground up process. And the more people we worked with and parents and educators who were concerned from about young people as well, the more we sort of were able to learn in terms of in terms of what ultimately what was helpful for people. And that's where the book came from. Yeah. So, so is climate change a relatively new field of spe- specialization for psychologists? Because I actually wasn't aware until quite recently that climate psychologists actually existed. 
So um, in 2019, that's when eco-anxiety was sort of kind of hit pop culture. We started seeing it um, on in television, in music, um, even on menus. Burger King was suddenly doing Impossible Burger. So that's when it, it kind of became more... Um, apparent in the lexicon. And likewise, that was around the same time that sort of there was the Extinction um, Rebellion uprising, Greta Thunberg had hit, um, it sort of hit the popular culture. And I think it it wasn't, you know, it was sort of the first time that it had come into focus as sort of in the global north. But I think it's really important to see um, that climate the you know um, climate emotions have been very um, uh, you know evident throughout um, in the indigenous cultures where there's already loss of land um, and the emotional impact that that has. Um, so so it's sort of new to the pop culture scene, but it's been very present for a long, long time. I think as well that that you know as like, I think as psychologists have been involved, I would say in uh, in slightly other areas around around climate change. We've talked about climate communication already today slightly earlier than that we're sort of starting to, to think about how how we can communicate effectively about this from a psychological perspective um, also looking at the direct mental health impacts in local regions after some form of extreme weather event and that I'd say we've been probably fo- you know the focus on that has, has been slightly longer standing so um, before the rise of kind of our understanding about eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, we were looking very specifically and saying, you know, what are the direct mental health consequences immediately following floods, wildfires, etc. But what we came to realise was, you know, there are those sort of direct effects in those areas, you know, things like rates of anxiety, depression, trauma responses, you know, also rates of kind of substance abuse and even domestic violence were, you know, more likely following extreme weather events in those regions but what we also started to think notice was actually there was this other thing as well that we that we came to understand as being climate anxiety dr patrick kennedy williams and megan kennedy woodard it's been a pleasure uh chatting with you it's been a fascinating conversation thank you so much for your time thank you for having us thank you pleasure Welcome back to Hot In Here. I'm Jackson. And so, James, as we just heard, climate anxiety, it's not only very real, but it's very understandable, a very rational response. And there is a cure. Well, at least for some people, there's a cure. And that's simply channeling anxiety into action. Yeah, exactly. I really like what Dr. Patrick Kennedy Williams had to say. He said it exists on a spectrum. He even mentioned that climate denial is a form of anxiety towards climate. I really like what they both said about pathologizing, warning that you shouldn't just diagnose yourself as climate anxious because that's just going to stop yourself from doing anything when you should really be turning that anxiety into action. Yeah, and I think there's a really important point um, that is worth highlighting once again that was raised by Dr. Patrick Kennedy Williams. And it's that the people who are most vulnerable to climate change, it's those who are already really suffering the effects, they are experiencing a lot more climate anxiety than anyone else. And you can totally understand why those already living with the consequences um, feel so anxious and feel so powerless, especially given it's the most vulnerable countries uh, in the world, those that have contributed the least to climate change that are most at risk. Exactly. You know, that definitely makes sense. If the climate changing is your lived experience, you've got to be pretty mad at the developed world for blindly marching towards climate catastrophe. And on that point, it makes sense that young people are also feeling the effects of climate anxiety. You know, they're starting their lives and they feel like they're losing the race. Yeah, and not only that, they feel like they have been let down by older generations. Well, yeah, exactly. They've let them down. 
Thanks for listening to Hot in Here. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. The show is hosted by Jackson Williams and myself, James McManigan. Audio engineering and music is done by Callum Hicks. Make sure you tell your mates about the show and start chatting about climate change. <laughs>